Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode, I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. I recently posted two interesting bonus episodes to my Patreon account. First, for my indie bookstore series, I interviewed Alana Haley at Schuler Books in Grand Rapids, Michigan, about her store how it went viral on TikTok, its place in the community, and the fact that the store is also an indie publisher. For my Bookstagrammer series, I chatted with Deb Coco of at Lone Star Words and Kathy Starnes of at K Starnes about their accounts, the process of writing reviews, and then we followed it up with a deep dive into Southern literature. Thanks to the fabulous people that have joined my Patreon group as page turners. I am thrilled to chat books with you and greatly appreciate the support. If you have not yet and want to learn more, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as well to the wonderful individuals who have shared about the podcast recently on Instagram. Kelly of Kelly Hook Reads Books, Virginia of Virginia's Reading Life, Nana of Read the World Better, Deb of Lone Star Words, Kathy of K Starnes, Becky of Becky on Books, Mary of Homegrown Book Picks, Kristen of Kristen's Reading Milk, and Yvonne of Yo Books and Things. I really appreciate your sharing it and helping more people find the podcast. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am chatting with Maggie Sarachek and Abby Greenberg, who together are known as the Anxiety Sisters, about their new handbook for dealing with anxiety. Maggie's expertise is counseling and teaching people to find strength through community. As a social worker in a New York City high school, she specialized in the development of youth leadership as well as counseling individuals and families. She has also worked as a special education advocate, helping families to access services for their children and teens. Maggie became a full-fledged anxiety sister in her mid-20s while dealing with debilitating anxiety attacks. Since becoming an anxiety sister, she has become the wife of an anxious husband and the mother of two anxious kids, proving that anxiety is indeed contagious. Abby started talking at nine months and hasn't stopped since. She has gotten two degrees in the communication field, as well as a certificate in adult education and a master's in fine arts and creative writing. In addition to her more than 25-year career as a professor, Abby has served as a divorce mediator, a Myers-Briggs trainer, a motivational speaker, and a communication consultant, as well as a teacher development coordinator for several educational institutions. When she is not teaching, writing, researching, or panicking, she spends time with her anxiety sister Maggie, her anxious husband, and her three anxious kids. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Abby and Maggie. How are you guys? We're great. We're delighted to be here. I am delighted to have you here. I loved the Anxiety Sister Survival Guide. It is so relevant for both me and for today's times. 
And I can't wait to talk more about it with both of you. Wonderful. Why don't we start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of what the book is about? Okay, sure. We wrote the book we so desperately needed when we were going through the worst of our struggles with anxiety. It's basically a field guide to anxiety. Everything you ever wanted to know about anxiety, but were too anxious to ask. And it's meant to be sort of like a handbook where, you know, it's portable, you can take it with you anywhere. And it's a very, very comprehensive research-based book about not only the origins of anxiety and the neuroscience behind anxiety, but then also an arsenal of strategies and techniques of how to manage it. Obviously, there's a lot of books on the market about anxiety and mental health issues, but there's a, a few things that make ours a little different. I think first is that despite the fact that as profession, in our professional lives, we're researchers and counselors and educators, and you know we have all the graduate degrees, we really come to this book as sufferers. And we wrote this book from the sufferer's perspective, because we really felt that that's what we needed. We needed to feel like we weren't alone in the struggle, and that there was hope for some healing from the struggle. And so Mags and I really wanted to write a very hopeful book. And we felt that, that the best way to do that was to be very honest and talk about our own struggles. So you know, we tried to stay away from any scary clinical jargon. We, we like to rename things. For instance, we, we like to call anxiety spinning because we feel like it's a really apt metaphor. And also a lot of people have said to us, and, and we agree that sometimes the word anxiety is anxiety provoking. And you know, we try to be really conversational and use our senses of humor as well as our expertise. So, so that's the first thing that's different. And the next thing is that we have 10 years of interviews with sufferers. And so we were able to infuse the book with more than 200 stories from the trenches. And again, it helps you feel not alone and maybe recognize some of your own anxiety story in the stories of the people around the world that we were fortunate enough to speak with. I love that you describe the book as a field guide, because that's exactly how I viewed it as I was reading it. You could really dive in at any portion of the book and read about something that's relevant to what's happening right then for you. I started from the beginning and read it all the way through, but I've gone back several times and picked out different sections when there was something in particular I wanted to refer to. Oh, we love that. That's what we were hoping. Yeah. An anxiety sister I was talking to the other day said to me that no matter what type of anxiety one has or you know, ha- what level of anxiety one is experiencing, that you know, she felt like she could just go to the book and get a little tidbit that would be helpful for her that day. So that was a big compliment. (laughs) I agree with that completely. And the other thing that you pointed out that I think is so important is that you both suffer from anxiety. So you're reading a book written by people who know exactly what anxiety feels like. And I feel like sometimes when you're reading some of these books that are about either anxiety or depression or whatever it is, it isn't always by someone who's really experienced what they're writing about. And it makes such a difference. Yeah, we think it does. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, when we were looking for help with our anxiety, you know, we went right to the bookshelf, you know, we're book people. So that's where we went. And this is a true story. I actually had to leave the Barnes and Noble and, and take a sedative because I got so freaked out from the books that I was thumbing through in the sense that they were so prescriptive. And even though they were research-based and really well-written and I'm sure had great advice, I couldn't get past the the shoulds and the prescriptiveness of it. And, and it, it just was very anxiety provoking for me. I mean, it felt like, oh, does this person really even understand how paralyzed I am or how, how hard this is? And so we wanted our readers to know that, yes, we get it. We know how hard it is. We walk the walk. 
we've also huddled, heaved, hurled, palpitated, and sweated, but we, but we have lived that life. We totally understand what it feels like to be debilitated by your anxiety. And I think that makes such a difference when you're writing a book like this. And I think the reader will be able to tell that and have some comfort knowing that. Thank you very much. That's what we hoped for. The other thing you do is put some wonderful humor into the book, which also kind of adds a you know a little bit of levity when you're reading about a serious subject, which is so nice. Yeah, because part of what Abby was talking about in terms of leaving the bar, you know, leaving the bookstore was that these books were so serious and we were already completely freaked out. And so we definitely said we want our, our book to be conversational and a little bit funny. I mean, well, the truth is, is that we both use humor to deal with our yeah. anxiety. I mean, you know, if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. So, so we, we definitely, there've been many times where we have just used our humor to help us through. And we wanted to infuse the book with a little of that. So people could, you know, it's okay to laugh at your struggles that it's even helpful. Well, how did you guys get started with your whole movement, the Anxiety Sisters, all of it? So Abby and I met in college, and I think now you would say that we were both highly sensitive individuals (laughs) and very empathic. And I think we recognized in each other sort of soul sisters um, in the sense that we, we both struggled a lot with managing different emotions and different circumstances. And then when we graduated, we really started to suffer even more. And at times, one or the other of us became completely debilitated. And so we just knew we wanted to feel better. And we would go anywhere, do anything, pay any amount of money to anyone that offered a glimmer of hope for us. So we, we always say we had this decade of the is where we went to the nutritionist, the acupuncturist, the gastroenterologist, hypnotist, the hypnotist, the past life regressionist, whomever would take our money, you know, basically, <laughs> was we, we were going just looking to feel better, even if we didn't really fully understand what was wrong or have the vocabulary to describe what we were going through. And What we realized at the end of that was that what helped us the most was our relationship with each other, our friendship, because in each other, we found unconditional support. We found that we weren't judgmental, that we gave each other really practical advice and help. So that was the thing that was the most healing for us after all these trials and errors. And then as Abby said, we both ended up sort of being able to progress a little bit in our careers. And I, I became a social worker, got my master's in social work and became a school counselor. And Abby became a professor of communications. And then we were able to take that work expertise and experience and look at the literature around anxiety and mental health and, and translate it into even more concrete and practical terms so that we could benefit from it particularly and other people could benefit from it. And then there was this fateful bus ride that, Abby, you tell that story because you're better at the bus story <laughs> than I am. You just don't want to relive the snow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, everything Mag said is true. But so we had our own little community of two for, I would say, close to 20 years. Yeah. And then we were on this bus going into Manhattan and we were talking really loudly about private stuff, which is what we do since we're anxiety sisters. And so we, we were chatting about medication and side effects. And all of a sudden, the 
woman in the seat in front of us turned around and said, oh, I'm on that medicine also. What do you do about that side effect? And literally within 20 minutes, every woman on the bus was part of this conversation. And when we got off the bus, I said to Mags, can you believe how eager and willing these strangers were to talk to other strangers about such intimate things like their anxiety and their medication? And Mags said, well, yeah, because it's so lonely and isolating to be, you know, to have anxiety and people just are, they're dying to talk about it and have people to, to help them navigate it. And she just sort of announced to all of Manhattan, we're anxiety sisters. And it stuck. And that was when we decided to go ahead and try to, to take our group bigger. And so we went from two of us and now about that was in 2010. And now we have over 200,000. That's just amazing. 200,000 is a, a very large number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of anxiety out there. You know, yes. there's a lot of anxiety. And there's and there's while there's a lot of discussion of it, and there's different places to get help. I think that what our community really has, why we started it, is because we wanted a place that was going to be very non-judgmental and, as Abby said before, non, not prescriptive, not more shoulds on your to-do list that many of us anxiety sisters can't get done. So we try to give very practical help, but not telling you what you should be doing. Well, and I think anxiety is one of those things that if you haven't dealt with it or with someone else who who really suffers from anxiety, people don't always understand exactly what's going on and that it truly is a brain disorder and that whoever is struggling can't help it. And I think there's a lot of just get over that or just, you know, push through or buck up or whatever the advice is going to be, not really understanding that it's not nearly that simple. Well, that's the reason that we included some basic neuroscience in the book, because we really, you know, for us... We blamed ourselves for a long time for our anxiety disorders, and we felt very much like we had failed, that we, you know, that we couldn't do things right. We were flaky. We were unreliable. I mean, we really beat ourselves up about our anxiety disorders. And then when we learned the neuroscience and we realized that, wow, anxiety is something that can show up on an MRI. It's something you can see in your brain. It's a real physical disorder, even though people call it a mental disorder, but it really is physical in that it's in your brain. You just can't see it. And when we realized that, we, we said, oh my goodness, we have to share this with people. We have to help people understand it's not their fault. And so that's really why we included some, some basic neuroscience with some really good cartoons from our illustrator from across the pond. And, and we really want people to, to, to not feel that shame that we felt because there is no shame in having anxiety or any other disorder. Absolutely. But I think the difference is for a physical disorder, like if my leg is broken, it's in a cast, people see it, they understand. But with a brain disorder, it's not visible to others, at least not immediately. And there can be many causes for it and many different ways to cure it. So it's just so much more complicated and I think not always apparent. That's true. You know, that's absolutely true. And I think for all the, we both kind of have felt that for all the talk now about anxiety and, and mental health, and that's definitely increased over the years, there's not really talk about the nitty gritty of what it actually feels like in our bodies and also what it means for our lives. So a lot of people are very kind about saying, oh, you know, I understand someone has anxiety or depression or whatever else they have, but they're not so kind when that person says, oh, I can't show up to this, or, you know, I'm so sick that I can't be there for carpool. 
you know, so it's it's like people on one hand are talking about it more, but on the other hand, are not too happy with some of the consequences of it. Whereas it, like you said, if you had a broken leg and you you said, oh, I can't go running today, or I need to take the elevator, no one flinches. You know, someone has a broken leg. You they help bring, them. They bring you a casserole. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, I think that's exactly right. Or you say, I can't drive carpool because my leg's in a cast. So, I mean, I think it is definitely one of those things that educating people really helps. And so that's why I think not only is your book wonderful for those who are struggling with anxiety, but it also would be very helpful for those that have a relative or a close friend or whomever it is that is struggling with anxiety for them to understand better what exactly is happening. Absolutely. That's part of the reason we wrote the book. Yes. We're we're hoping that, you know, that anxiety sufferers can give that book to people in their lives and say, here, this, this might open a window of understanding for you. I agree with that. And I think it will go a long way toward helping people. So you all started with a blog and that was how you got going. And then what happened from there? Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) which I just recently listened to. I listened to the episode with Claire Bidwell-Smith about anxiety, the missing stage of grief. And I just really thought it was a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed both your podcast and everything that she had to say about grief and anxiety. She is a treasure. And if any of your listeners don't know her, you you should read her stuff. She wrote a phenomenal memoir called Inheritance. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was fantastic. And also, anxiety is the missing stage of grief. She's a grief counselor, and she's just an amazing person. We feel really lucky to know her. Or you can listen to her on the spin cycle with the anxiety sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely do that, because I thought it was great. Yeah, she really sort of brought a lot of her expertise in this area. And it was it was like a very moving conversation for us, too. Yes. But so we so we decided podcasting would be, I mean, we were both completely technologically illiterate. So we figured let's pick the hardest thing to do for people who ba- barely can turn their computer on and, and see what we can do with this. So we, we've been podcasting since 2017. We do one episode a month, roughly. And uh, we're getting better at it. And, <laughs> and we, we also started doing workshops and retreats pre-pandemic. Right. Obviously, that's been a little bit more sparse. We miss that. Yes, we miss that because that that's really one of our favorite things to do is to do workshops for people or we've even had a retreat or two that have been really powerful. And so we're we're looking forward to getting back to that. Yes, we, we just found out we have a live date in November. We're so excited. Oh, that's wonderful. So when you do a workshop, what does that look like? Well, it depends on the how long it is and the people that we're doing it for. But but really what we try to do in our workshop is talk a little bit about that whole idea that Abby was was talking about before, which is how this is a brain disorder. And then we we try to give some practical tips, like what can you do right now today at this moment to manage your anxiety? That That's usually how it looks because usually we don't have the same amount of time as in a retreat. Right. And you know, what, what we want, what we promise people when they walk into the workshop is, is that you're going to feel better when you leave. We promise. I mean, you're not going to be cured. Can't do that, but we can make you feel better because we can demystify the experience of anxiety so that you understand that you're not at fault. We can give you some, some ways to get the people in your life to be on board and help you out a little better. And we can give you a few practical techniques you can try on for size and see if they work for you. And the response has been great. And we just love connecting with people individually. It's so great. 
You talk in your book about how important human connection is to helping with anxiety. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, connection, human, we're, we're social animals, right? We're designed, we are hardwired to connect with one another. That's why we have these things called mirror neurons, which are basically nerve cells that respond to other people. And that's all they do. So, you know, we are set up to connect with other human beings. And you can see your mirror neurons in action. If you smile at someone, they'll smile back. Sometimes they won't even mean to, and they'll smile back. But that's, you know, the mirror neurons at work. So, you know, we really believe that that connecting with other humans, and, and it doesn't have to just be humans, it could be animals and nature, but connecting should be part of your treatment plan if you are an anxiety sufferer on some level. And, and the good news is it doesn't have to be an intimate connection. We're not suggesting that you have to have, you know, a very best friend that you talk to five times a day. It can be simple things like waving to, you know, the, the Amazon delivery guy or, you know, having a quick conversation with the person who's pouring your coffee at Starbucks. I mean, it, it, the, it's these small interactions that go a really long way. So we are huge fans of connecting on any level. Even online is a great way to connect. And, um, and we see that every day on our Facebook page. I really like your Facebook page. I joined it and it's been interesting to see everybody's comments. And I feel like I've already learned a lot and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thank you very much. I have to say, I, I am so proud of our Facebook group because it is a really large group and yet it feels to me like an intimate group. I mean, we really, we've gotten to know so many people that are, that are regulars and the conversations are so warm and generous and supportive. And we, we learn from our anxiety sisters every day. Yeah. One of our favorite things that happens a lot on our Facebook page is that we'll talk about some something or someone else on the Facebook page will talk about something. And a bunch of people will say, really? I didn't know that was a thing. I thought that was just me. You know, for example, we were talking about that, that feeling of being very discombobulated when you're having a panic attack and you feel like you're floating a little bit in we call it floating. Other people call it clinically. It's called dissociation or depersonalization. And people will chime in and say, oh, oh my God, I've had that since I was a child. And I've never told another soul this because I thought maybe I was crazy. And just having that place where people say, oh, it's not just me. Like this is... Yeah. It, it's you know? wonderful when somebody will talk about an experience, you know, and, and there's so much bravery in, in, in our Facebook group in the sense that people are really honest about their struggles. And it's amazing how people will, you know, answer me too, or, oh my God, I felt the same way, or that happened to me. And then the person who initially had said something will say, wow, I I feel better knowing I'm not alone. And that's the whole essence of what Mags and I have been trying Mm -hmm. to do is we just want people to know they are not alone. Well, and I think that's why having these conversations about anxiety and the suffering and just, you know, how it makes you feel is so important. And so it's, I don't think that's something that's been happening for super long. And it's wonderful that it is now happening a lot more and that you all are facilitating it. Thank Thank you you very much. And you are right, because when we were in college in the 1980s, it was not talked about at all. You know, we definitely were having panic attacks and all kinds of anxiety symptoms. And we both used the counseling center. And they were very helpful in the way that they knew how to be. But nobody ever said to me, you know, you have anxiety. Right. That was never said to me. Right. You're having symptoms of OCD or you're having panic attacks or you're having separation anxiety. Yeah. No one ever used those words, you know, and no one ever even said to me, oh, so here's some ways that we can help you with this. It was just, all right. So, you know, try, try to, you know, get some exercise and eat, eat healthfully and, you know, and don't, and don't lock yourself in your room. 
Well, I'm glad that now things are beginning to be better and that you all are providing some kind of platform for people to come together to talk about it all. Well, thank you very much. So as anxiety sufferers, what was it like writing a book and then writing a book together? <laughs> um, anxiety provoking. <laughs> no. Well, we we like kidding. to say that we, you know, for so long wanted to write a book. And so we got a wonderful agent and she sold our book to a division of Random House and everything was going along swimmingly. And, and for the two of us, what we usually do is we sort of lock ourselves in a room together and we we write like word by word, we kind of fight it out. And, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we have little arguments where one of us storms away for a few minutes, but we always come back and, and kind of that's how, that's our process. You storm, I cry. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is our, that's our process. Um, and, and, and also the way we write is that we sit and have a conversation very much like we're having with you. And literally we, we, I, I type it as we go. I'm like the stenographer. And I happen to be a very fast typist, thanks to my eighth grade typing teacher. You know, and so I'd literally type everything we're saying, and then we go back and we shape it into meaningful sentences and ideas. But the hard part was that we got our book deal in um, March of 2020. So also in March of 2020, <laughs> COVID-19 showed up and kind of laughed at all of our dreams. <laughs> so, so we, of course couldn't get together to write because we live in separate states and neither one of us would travel. And, you know, we wanted to stay safe and keep our family safe. So talk about panic. Yes. Yeah, so we, yeah. we, we, we did a little bit of panicking before we realized that we were going to write this book the way Alexander Graham Bell intended it by phone. <laughs> <laughs> the whole reason he invented the telephone. Exactly. Exactly. So we started our, you know, writing this book at one o'clock every single day was writing time and we would, you know, on the phone, or on the computer, just, you know, write, but from afar. We were basically on the phone and the computer at the same time. Oh my goodness. And then in the, in the mornings, we would often do some sort of separate research and then come together. And, you know, our families knew that between one o'clock and depending on how long we wrote that day, four o'clock, five o'clock, whatever we did, they could not interrupt us. That was writing time. So that was actually really precious. And it, and, you know, I think it helped us both get through that hardest part of the pandemic, that isolation piece, because first of all, we definitely, you know, were, were, we had a plan, we had an activity we had to do every single day. So that structured us. But also, you know, as we were writing about the strategies and we would say, oh, yeah, yeah, remember that? That's a good thing to think about right now when we're going through this pandemic. So right. we actually helped ourselves a little bit writing the book. Well, that's the whole reason I launched the podcast was because I was so stressed out by COVID and just constantly scrolling through my phone, you know, doom scrolling and just making myself more and more agitated. And I was like, I need something else to focus on that will completely pull me away from COVID and what's happening now. And the podcast did that. So it's nice when you have something else you can focus on. Right. It gives you a structure too, in a time that felt very, very unstructured at times. Well, that's true too. And it just gave my brain something else to focus on. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, what's the number one question you're asked by people? Is this really anxiety? You know, anxiety can show up in so many different ways. You know, there's, there are so many different types of anxiety, first of all, but there's also so many different symptoms from, you know, that rumination from excessively thinking about something to 
rashes on your arms to feeling nauseous to having the cardiac symptoms, the bare aspirin symptoms, that sometimes it's really hard to believe that something that originated in our brain can express itself so sort of violently and deeply in our body. Yes. And so people are always saying, can this really be anxiety? Yeah, it is sometimes hard to think that a rash, you know, something that you're having in your brain that is kind of hiccuping you is then causing a rash or your stomach to hurt or whatever it is. You know, it's sometimes hard to make those connections. Yeah, or it's causing you to yawn or pee excessively or or cough, you know. Yeah, or, or fart, you know, like we're just being real here. So yeah. it's, there's so many different manifestations of anxiety. And so, you know, it's con- it's a constant, like, is this, you know, where is this coming from? And and, and we get it because that, incredul- that incredulity that you experience with it, we experienced it too. I mean, that's why we talked about our decade of the is. I mean, we kept going to all these specialists because we kept not believing that what we had was anxiety. We kept saying, no, 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 no. I mean, for me, I had a lot of cardiac symptoms. And so, I mean, there was one time when I was in the emergency room and the doctor came in and said, you know, we did the the enzyme test. There was no heart attack. And I said, do it again. You're missing something. (laughs) And I was serious because it's really hard to believe that anxiety, that an emotional state or a fear state could cause my left arm to go numb. That it just didn't make sense to me. But in fact, that's what it was. But I do think that's right. I think the making sense part of it, you know, it's just hard to think, okay, if I'm having this issue with my brain, that it is actually causing something physical to happen. Right, right. We get the whole idea of butterflies in our stomach. We've all felt that when we're anxious, but we definitely don't understand the physical nature of our emotions because, you know, in our, in our culture, mind and body are still separated. You know, even though we've gotten better about that, we still can't conceive of them as sort of one and the same. Right. That's why they say mind-body connection. And Mags and I say all the time in our workshops and in our book, it's not really a mind-body connection. They're the same thing. The mind and the body are one thing. So when one thing happens with one, it's going to show up in the other as well. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And if you want to see what it looks like in a diagram, all you have to do is look at a diagram of your stomach and your brain, and the vagus nerve that connects the two. Because all of that feedback that goes back and forth between your stomach and your head, you know, that's, that's where we get our anxious stomachs and where we, you know, get all those symptoms. It's because our bodies are connecting, our brain and our stomachs are connected. And we know that most of our serotonin, which is that chemical, you know, the feel-good chemical that a lot of SSRIs, a lot of things like Prozac and Zoloft are trying to target, that most of that is actually in our stomach. 95% of it. Really? Yes. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So it's, it's this whole separation. Um, we actually had a really interesting man on our podcast, Dr. Robert Smith, who's a professor. And he was talking about, you know, that this separation happened, you know, in the, was it in the middle, mid, in the dark ages or middle, middle ages, middle, middle ages, ages yeah. when it was like the church said, okay, you know, do- medicine was just starting. And they said, doctors, you can have the body, but we have the soul. So like the head and the thoughts had to be separate from the body. Right. And that's really why we have that separation. And you look at some Eastern cultures and they really don't have that separation. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. He was very, very interesting. Actually. Oh yeah. We loved him. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? And what age range would you say your book is applicable for? Okay, so we'll answer the age range. The stories in the book from the people that we've interviewed are 
between the ages of 18 and 98. So we sort of saw that as the general age range. Of course, a little bit younger and a little bit older would be fine too. You know, I think a lot of 16 year olds in, in high school, in the later part of high school, would really benefit from this book. And they are. We, we're getting feedback that that's, you know, really helpful. I don't know that, that it's necessarily for school age for young children. That's, there's, there's a different book for that. <laughs> but, but would you say that's true, Max? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that it would be very applicable for teenage kids. I think, especially with COVID and how much in social media, just all the stuff that's being thrown at teenagers these days, I feel like this book is perfect for them. And the field guide format and the humor, all of it would really appeal to them. So I just think if people are looking for something to give to a teenager who's struggling a little bit, your book is perfect. Yeah. And I I was a high school counselor and Abby was a college professor. So it's an age group that it's my favorite age group and to work with. And it's an age group we feel very comfortable with. So, and we've done an awful lot of workshops for teens. That's been, I would say that I, ironically, that's been the the number one workshop that gets requested for us is for high school students. I think that makes perfect sense because they are the ones that are beginning to experience some of that, or they've probably been experiencing it for a while, but really it starts happening in high school when there's so many different things to balance and they just need some help. Oh, yeah. And and the pre-adult brain is not the same thing as an adult brain. And we talk about that in the book. It's There really is a difference. It's not just smaller. Absolutely. So it's important for anyone who either is a teen or loves or works with or knows a teen to recognize that the pre-adult brain is not just a miniature version of the adult brain. Right. And it, and if you struggle with technology and your eight-year-old is helping you all the time, then you know that our brains are just different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what about what readers take away from your book? You know, one of the things we want to do in our book, as Abby said before, is really give a very comprehensive understanding of what anxiety is but do it in a very non-threatening way. So that, and the whole idea of that is like for people to learn that there's no blame here, there's no shame here. We believe that you can live happily with anxiety because, you know, Mags and I do. For most people, you can't eliminate your anxiety disorder from your life. What you can do is learn how to live well with it, manage it, just as you would another condition, another, any kind of other health condition. But I think we want people to also know that they are not alone, mm-hmm. that you know, we were perhaps in the world's largest sorority with the toughest initiation. <laughs> right. And we, we also want to give a lot of practical advice because I know that's what we so needed. Mm-hmm. So we want some of the advice is, you know, you can use it right now, no matter what state you're in with your anxiety. And, and then some of our discussion is around sort of living a a happy, fulfilled life, like things that you can do sort of long-term to manage your whole mental health. But a lot of our, a lot of our book is like, yeah, you know, try this, try this, try this, uh, different things people can try. Cause like we said before, one size doesn't fit all, you know, and one size may not fit you two days in a row (laughs) as I can attest. (laughs) So, you know, we, we really do believe you need an arsenal of strategies and techniques. And that's something we really try to provide for people. I really liked the part about caffeine and how it can be anxiety inducing. However, you know, a lot of people need coffee to get them going and it might be more anxiety producing to not have the coffee. So you talk about how there are certain things that may work for somebody, may work for somebody else, but that you also have to find what works for you to balance your own life, not just your anxiety. 
Well, I mean, just in terms of caffeine, I'm just going to say this real quick. It's also, if you're a depression sufferer, caffeine is also something that has been shown to really help people with depression often. Not always, but often. So like we want to balance everything out. But also there's that idea that when we were reading these anxiety books, they were very prescriptive. It was like, eat, you know, your- no sugar eat all your vegetables or, you know, don't have gluten, whatever the, go exercise, whatever the prescription this person believed in was, you know, take medication or don't take medication. And one of the things that we try to say over and over again is that there's not, you know, there's no shoulds here. And depending on where you are with your anxiety, you'll be able to do different things, right? But there's not... We never want someone to say like, oh, I, I can't follow their advice because I can't get out of bed. Like, I can't leave my apartment. What right. do you mean go exercise? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we both had that experience of being told things that certainly are helpful now that we mm-hmm. are, we manage our anxiety very well. So now, of course, exercise and movement is a huge part of both of our lives. But when I was having severe panic, and I'm talking three, four panic attacks a day that would leave me in, in a fetal position you know, like just in a ball on the floor. When, you know, someone would say to me, a doctor or a specialist would say to me, you know, what you really need to do is, you know, just like 30 minutes of cardio. (laughs) I am, my heart is going out of control, racing all day long. I don't think I can get it to go any higher. I'm already sweaty and clammy and feeling like I'm going to have a heart attack. So, you know, we, we really are careful about saying that everybody's in a different place with their anxiety. And that's why we, we don't do the shoulds because you know, there's a lot of shame that goes with mental health issues, unfortunately, in our culture. And we really would, we're part of the battle to end that stigma because we don't believe you can live happily with blame and shame. That's got to go. The BS has got to go. And, you know, one thing that is very shaming is being told something you should do and then not being able to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think your message, one size doesn't fit all, is a really good message. You know, that it just, you have to see where you are, but you also have to see what works for you. You know what one works for one person may not work at all for you. Right. And then and then definitely, you know, Abby and I have both found that as we've learned to manage our anxiety more and more, different things help us now than they did in the times where we were really in crisis. And so, you know, you can expand and change as as you're learning to manage. And so, you know, we want to give such a wide range of possibilities you know, and that's why. And I loved that. I just felt that will really appeal to all sorts of people who are struggling at different ages and different parts of their struggle. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I know you're both big readers. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've both read recently that you really liked. Oh gosh, I read so, so much. So let me think. Okay. So in terms of fiction, I just finished The Gunkle. I loved so much. I thought it was so, I, I know I love these gems. I, I consider that book a gem because, you know, the author writes with such a, a humorous tone. And yet I found that story to be so poignant and so powerful and such a real life lesson about connection and about all of us. And so I admire that. So, and another book that's like that was Frederick Bachman's Anxious People. It was it, on, on the surface, it looked very lighthearted. It had a lot of humor in it but it really fundamentally addressed the human condition. And the best literature does that and, and makes us feel part of something bigger than ourselves. So those, I would say, my two fiction favorites. And then I read a very difficult book called Notes from a Silencing. 
And now the author's name is escaping me. Oh, Lacey, Lacey. Uh, I'll have to look it up. I so apologize to that author. It was a beautifully written book about a really, really hard subject. She was sexually assaulted when she was in high school. And she writes about it so candidly. And it's a, it's a book that could be very triggering for some people, but I have to say such an important read. Well, and again, much like your book, probably really useful for people that have experienced the same thing she did. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And she, and she, her writing, oh my goodness, I, and I envy the writing. Well, and I love all of these human connection books that those are, that's kind of one of my favorite groups or types of books to read where, you know, there are people who maybe haven't in recent times had the connections they would like to have and they come together for whatever reason and it completely impacts or transforms their lives. I love those stories. And I, and I also, I'll tell you for me, when I'm feeling really alone or lonely, there's nothing like a good character that makes me feel connected. I mean, that character, uh, the Gunkle, Patrick, I mean, he's my friend. He really is. I mean, he's my friend from that story. He is my friend. I recognize so much of myself in him and and so much of humanity in him. And it was so connecting, really, truly. Have you read his previous book, The Editor? No, but that is next on my list. Oh, oh good. I love that book so much. It's about a guy who writes a book and he shows up to meet his editor and it's Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And it's just oh. such a wonderful story. Okay. Yeah. That's definitely that's awesome on my list. This is Maggie. And I have been following this author, Nathan Englander, during the pandemic. He wrote what we what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, which is a book of short stories. Um, he wrote Dinner at the Center of the World. And he's just it's one of these books where his writing is so brilliant, but often I'm laughing out loud, but it's also incredibly moving. So he, he has both of those covered. And I'm just kind of trying to read everything that he's written, which isn't, he's young. It's not, it's not a huge amount of books, but I, I've just been following him. And then the other thing that I realized that helps me tremendously is reading poetry. And, I, and I'm not someone who sits down and reads the whole poetry book, but reading poems sort of one by one, it, uh, Abby and I talk a lot in our book, um, The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide, about this idea that wonder and sort of looking at the world with the sense of wonder is really helpful in our, in our long-term mental health. And poetry, like a good poem, like I've put up Good Bones by Maggie Smith on Anxiety Sisters on our Facebook page quite a lot, or I put up Mary Oliver poems. There's a, a man named Yeshua November that I've been reading a lot of. My friend Lynn Shapiro from Hoboken is a brilliant poet. And I feel like reading reading a really good poem is just, it fills me with connection and wonder. And um, so that's why sometimes you will even find once in a while, I put up a poem on Facebook, because I want to reach out to the other people that will experience it the same way I do. Oh, I love that. Do you ever read Billy Collins? Oh, sure. I love Billy Collins. He's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He he's you know, he's brilliant. And Amanda Gorman right now yes. has been very successful and her poems are stunning. They are. And my daughter loves Amanda Lovelace. I don't know. Oh yeah. I know who that is yeah. too. So yeah. I, I yeah. love poetry too. And I think it's nice because you can just sit down, flip open a book, read whatever the particular poem is. And, you know, then it gives you so many things to think about. That, and I, and I love the poems that sort of reframe and speak to 
our modern experience or the experience of nature sometimes, you know, in a, in a really, you know, it's such a beautiful and astonishing framework sometimes. And from a writer's perspective, I just admire anyone who can create such vivid imagery in so few words. I mean, I, I find the hardest thing to do as a writer is to revise and edit. I remember the day our editor told us we had to take 10,000 words out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of crying in my, on my end. Um, because I just find it's, you know, it's, isn't it Mark Twain who said, you know, I apologize for the length of this, but I didn't have time to make it shorter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I just admire how much a, a poet can, can express in so few words. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. incredible to me as a writer. That always brings to mind Robert Frost for me. He's probably my all-time favorite and obviously incredibly popular. But I went through a period where I would listen to him because there's all these recordings of him reading his poems, which I just loved. And when my kids were young, they would listen to them at bedtime and we would talk through them or we'd listen to them in the car. And he just has such an amazing way with words and imagery where, you know, like fire and ice and birches. And you can just literally see what he's talking about. And just when he's reading it himself, even it just, I don't know, there's nothing better. Yeah, and I can hear him singing miles to go before. Exactly. I, <laughs> I mean, that, and that is so nice on the internet that you can go to like the Poetry Foundation and they have a lot of authors reading their poems. And, you know, poetry is a lot, you know, for a lot of people, poetry is stuck, like sort of how they read it in high school, you know, and sometimes that wasn't so satisfying. But there's, there's such a wide range of poetry that I really encourage people to kind of give it, a, give it another look. And like anxiety strategies, one size doesn't fit all. So, you know, what might be really amazing for one person may not be as appealing to someone else or what resonates with you may not resonate with me. But it, it's just there's so much out there that we do. We encourage people to, to give it a shot. Well, and I think it's the Poetry Foundation, but there's one group that will send you a poem a day. And I did that for a long time because it was kind of gave me a way to do exactly what you were just describing, Abby, like get a sense for what appealed to me and what didn't appeal to me as much. And so as the poems came in, I could say, okay, this is written by whoever it was. And I really liked this one or this one didn't appeal to me as much. And I really thought that was a great way to sort of dip a toe into poetry. Yeah, I'm fairly sure and sure that is the Poetry Foundation. You can sign up on email to get, a, to get the poem of the day. And I liked that a lot. Yeah. Can I just make one plug for audiobooks too? Absolutely. I have to say, I'm, I am a big consumer of audiobooks, but I only will listen to the ones that are read by the author. Just because I really, I'm, I love to hear, I mean, to me, there is nothing more poetic and incredible than listening to Toni Morrison read Beloved. Right. I mean, I listen to that every single year. It's my favorite book of all time. And she is my hero of, of heroes. I just worship the water she walked on. And her voice listening to her read her work, it, I mean, which is already so powerful to begin with, it, I can't even tell you, it's so moving. So I encourage people to go, for, go to your library and borrow on Overdrive or one of those, uh, an audiobook and give it a shot. It's absolutely a marvelous experience. It's also a great anxiety management technique. Like yes. if you, I mean, Abby and I always talk about like if, if we're having a long drive or something, you know, and you pop in David Sedaris or, oh, or yeah. anyone else, it's a great distraction. Yes. Even when I'm doing stuff around the house, I still am not completely in the habit of doing that, but I'm really working on it just to get it going. Because then when I'm doing laundry or the dishes or whatever it is around the house, it's playing. It kind of gives me something that's keeping me company and 
you know, makes all of that go by quicker. I'm listening to On Animals by Susan Orlean, and she reads it, and it is so good. I will say I speed it up to about 1.5, and that helps a lot just because if not, sometimes the reading is too slow for me. But but speeding it up, you know, makes it go a little quicker, but also, I don't know, I just really do enjoy listening to them, and it's a good way to pass the time. And it's a great great anxiety management yeah. strategy, for, especially, you know, for those people that have trouble driving. Yeah. Well, we, um, people write us about car panic and we always say, ah, oh, well, you got to pop in one of either very soothing music or a, a light audiobook. That's going to help a lot. Oh, that's good to know. Well, I could talk to you guys all day, but I no, don't have time for that. But I so appreciate Abby and Maggie that you both came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast and chatted with me. Oh, we this loved was so much here. fun. We loved being here. Yeah, we we just because we're book people, we get so much out of your podcast. Yes, and we just we love listening to it. Well, and I'm happy to have found your podcast, and I'm going to now go back and listen to all the earlier episodes that I haven't listened to yet. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.